Welcome to the Leap Podcast. This is Kat Fan, Tammy Tran, and Tammy Bowie, your hosts for the Leap Podcast. Leap stands for Leadership Education for Asian Pacifics. episode of the Lee podcast we have certainly certainly missed interacting with all of y'all and we cannot think of a better person to really start you know the the end the starting of the end to season two you might recognize her if you were a part of our january leap connect building resilience in the new year without further ado our Amazing, amazing guest is Dr. Anjali Amin. This conversation has been such a bomb to the soul. So Dr. Amin has received extensive training in the area of behavioral medicine, social justice, and evidence-based treatments for depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Drawing from a humanistic and existential orientations, Dr. Amin uses a strength-based approach to empower her clients and help them live a purposeful life. So anyway, we'll just start because we are so excited to have you on. I think mental health has been just an overwhelming and needed conversation within the last two years. I think it really hit a boiling point, especially for our API community. And we're so happy that, you know, our president CEO, Linda Kutagawa, was like, you should talk to Dr. Anjali Amin. So I'm like, wow. And you were kind enough to respond to us. And it's incredibly impressive, your background, and also how aesthetically pleasing your website is. I just want to note that it looks really beautiful. So you should be very proud of yourself. (laughs) Well, thank you. I worked really hard on that. And um, it's like, that was a labor of love. It took a long time to put together. Um, Working in websites, it's a secret beast for sure. (laughs) Um, but thank you for having me I'm I'm really excited to be here and to kind of talk about some of the topics that that we've got on board today so yes well Dr. Amin um, we know a little bit about you Tammy Tran and I but for our new listeners to the Leap Podcast or even new folks who might not be familiar with you and your work could you just share with us like more about yourself, you know, how you've gotten into mental health and your whole career as well? Because I think, um, unfortunately, there's not many South Asian women in the medical profession. So when we do have like, you know, amazing subject matter experts, it's really important that we, you know, pave the path of representation. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I am a licensed clinical psychologist by training, and I ended up in mental health, you know, I would say kind of serendipitously, like it wasn't something that I was specifically zoned in on. I was more coming from a place of, you know, I want to do something with my career that involves me helping other people, like helping my community. And, you know, it was really through mentorship and um, guidance that I received from undergraduate professors that I was sort of funneled into this um 
the psychology program in at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. And it's, if you've never heard of Carbondale, most people haven't. It's this tiny little college town at the very bottom of Illinois. It's actually closer to St. Louis than it is to Chicago. Um, and I ended up going there um, as part of what, what we call the freedom train, which was um, something that one of my mentors, Dr. Joseph White, created. And, and he created this family, this network of folks, um, primarily people of color, um, as a way of sort of elevating them to, um, you know, reach their full potential. And everyone in the Freedom Train is involved in mental health in some way. And Dr. Joseph White is considered the godfather of Black psychology. And so he's got a, a long, strong legacy in the field. Um, so it was through my mentors in that network where I ended up in Carbondale in a program um, for counseling psychology. And, you know, when I got there, it was it was really um kind of eye-opening. I mean, I had never really lived in a tiny little college town. Uh, you know, I was coming from Southern California, Orange County in particular, where I did my undergraduate degree. And, you know, it really kind of made me think a lot about who I am, my identity, what I wanted to do with with my work and my career and, and how I wanted to help people. And I sort of combined my interest in psychology with my interest in health, um, physical health. And so that's where I ended up kind of focusing on health psychology and really kind of thinking about the ways in which our physical health impacts us emotionally, it impacts our lifestyle, um, our quality of life. And so um, once I finished with my degree, I went on and did a little bit more training, um, primarily in the Midwest and through the VA, um, the VA hospital, so Veterans Affairs. And I've spent the, mo the majority of my career at the VA, um, so working with our military veterans, um, of all, you know, all backgrounds. And, and that's been a really wonderful experience. So being able to exercise my interest in health and medicine with psychology in that hospital system has been really great. Um, and so I do a lot of other things outside of my nine to five. I have a small private practice that I recently started, and that's been a really great way for me to connect more with my community and um, <clears throat> with people who look like me. And um, it's been wonderful to kind of work with folks in the Asian American community. And then I also um, do a little bit of leadership work outside of um, work work uh, with the Asian American Psychological Association. And that was an organization I joined when I was in grad school. Um, and I was introduced to it by a professor of mine in graduate school. And it has been just a wonderful place to sort of create community. I've, I've developed so many wonderful relationships with other API folk who are in mental health through that organization. Um, and I've just kind of, you know, always sort of been involved in it in some way or the other uh, since I started. And so... Here we are today, and I'm now the incoming president of the organization um, and the first South Asian president. So that also has been kind of a really awesome milestone for the That's great. Congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. I love that. Yes. Oh, my God. Thank we love you. women in power. Yes. And congrats on breaking that barrier. Wow. I can't believe it's it's taken this long, but 
I'm glad it's you. Aunt Julie, you, so um, and, you know, I love your your introduction in terms of what brought you. Um, you grew up in Orange County. What part of Orange County? up in Orange County. I actually grew okay. up in Bakersfield in the Central Valley, but I went to I went to undergraduate undergraduate in Irvine, so at UC Irvine. Oh. Got it. Got it. So, so there is this train that you've taken, I mean, throughout the United States of America that took you from Bakersfield to Orange County through the Freedom Train. And then, our, um, and I love your story about um, the sharing how there's a network of people that have mentored and supported you through the, the years and how that really propelled you to, to help people. I think, um, you know, mental health is definitely something that is prominent in our API community, um, both quietly and loudly. And I, I think that it's loud because of our generation, right? We wellness and self care is so important. Um, but within our immigrant communities, our parent, our parents' generation, those that are just um, coming to America or becoming new Americans, mental health is not something that people t- typically um, prioritize in their life, right? So, can you talk a little bit about how about the stigma around mental health, particularly within API community, and what are your thoughts about how do we break down those barriers, particularly with our older generation? Yeah. So, you know, I I speak a little bit from personal experience with this as well, um, as well as, you know, clinical and research and kind of learning through through studies that we've done. But, you know, there's we as Asian Americans and and I, I recognize that that covers a whole host of communities. Right. So it's a big generalization. But generally what we've seen in um, studies that that we've done on on some of this population is that we utilize mental health services the least out of all other ethnic groups. And, you know, that's challenging, right? In in ways in which, you know, we don't have other support, that's, that's really challenging. What we've seen is that within our communities, we reach out to friends and family first, right? We sort of keep things within our personal networks um, for a variety of reasons, right? We don't want to burden other people. We don't want to bring shame on our families because of the taboo associated with mental health issues. Um, but sometimes that really creates extra burden, right? Especially if your network, right, your family network isn't necessarily the most supportive or isn't the most comfortable place to kind of process and talk through mental health stuff. And so, um, you know, we see a lot in terms of um, just shying away from mental health, not having a language, I think has been a really big barrier, right? So especially with our older generations, and I think about my parents in particular, and my aunts and uncles, you know, their language around describing emotion is really limited, right? And whether that comes from just their native language or just not having had conversation around it, right? That sort of gets translated and passed on generation to generation. Um, You know, and for me, I think being born and brought up in the States, I was able to kind of see both sides of it because I was hearing a little bit about mental health and and emotion and sort of seeing it with people outside of my family and outside of my community. Um, But then I would come home and we wouldn't necessarily talk about things um, or, you know, there were certain expectations that were placed, right? Um, I remember growing up, you know, whenever me and my brother would cry or get upset, you know, the first thing my parents would say is, don't cry, don't cry, you're fine, right? And those 
that sort of sent a message, right? That, okay, I shouldn't cry, right? And so from then on, you kind of see the dominoes fall. Well, okay, throughout life, right? I tried not to cry when I was hurt or experiencing hardship. And it, it took a really long time for me to be comfortable with just expressing emotion, right? And I think that can be one of the biggest challenges that we see within the API population, right? Is we get messages around how to experience or communicate or talk about our emotion and that sort of sticks with us through life and then maybe we run into a situation where that doesn't work as well for us and we've got to then kind of scramble and figure out a different way you know when you mentioned about um not being able to cry i it, the thought came to my mind i've never seen my father cried i've never seen him cry and here is a man that grew up in vietnam um fought in the vietnam war Right. And then became a refugee um, and have raised, you know, three daughters here in America. And I know that he suffers from, you know, from from, you know, from trauma. Yeah. I've never seen him cry. I've never seen him cry. I bet every one of us can probably say that about someone we know, right? That's a family member. I have not seen this person cry. I've never seen, there's lots of people in my family I have not seen cry. And I know they've gone through difficult hardships and even just hearing kind of, you know, sort of the general details of your father's life, right? I, I It sort of takes me ba back a little bit. Like I, I sort of am holding my breath. Like I can't believe I can't imagine going through all of that, right? And and holding yourself together in that way, right? I mean, just the process of, of you know, the experience of being a refugee. Um, that's something that my family identifies with as well. What, what advice, yeah, what, I'm sorry, Dan, uh, what advice do you have to, to, for someone like um, Kat and I? Because we have, you know, our parents are first generation. And what advice do you have for us in terms of how can we pry, you know, our parents from speaking up? Because like not in, in addition to not ever seeing my dad cry, he's never talked or complained about his life. Um, and so how do you provide, how do you be there for someone that you obviously understand that they have trauma, they have, you know, mental health, I'm, I, you know, I'm using mental health broadly, but you know, there's, there's a need for mental health there. So how do you reach, you know, that population, our parents, our elders, elders? Uh, that's tough. And <laughs> I will say there's no one size fits all solution, right? So I think part of it is sort of thinking about, you know, what is my relationship with this person, right? How do I connect with them? Um, and sort of trying to step into those spaces, right? So, um, you know, when I think about my relationship with um, my mom or my dad, I want to think about in what spaces am I most connected with them? So maybe it's when my dad and I are sitting down and watching, you know, Sunday night football, right, which we've done since I was little, or maybe it's um, with me and my mom, maybe it's around, you know, the kitchen, right? Because she's, she's, she loves, she cooks a lot, right? So, so maybe that's the space that I want to kind of interact with them. Also, just kind of thinking about, how do I engage and, and position myself as a listener, right? Maybe it's just a simple question of like, you know, what was this like for you when you were a kid? Um, you know, 
I think one of the most powerful things that we can pull from our culture is, is the art of storytelling, right? And we think about how many stories are passed on from generation to generation, whether it comes from, you know, a cultural place, um, a religious or spiritual space, but we engage right through storytelling, which is so much different than what we see in mainstream America or mainstream Western countries, right? And so that can kind of be a really powerful space, I think, to connect with elders, right? Can you tell me what it was like or or tell me what was going on in this picture, right? What was that like for you? Um, So I think there's finding connection through storytelling and, and, and connecting, you know, depending on kind of the context of the relationship that you have with someone. And then I think there's also normalizing things, right? And I think we're starting to see that more and more. And I hope that as we advocate for more API representation, we start to see people who hold influence talking about these things. But I think that that can be really powerful, right? If if my parents can see someone that they hold in high respect talking about emotion or or talking about mental health issues, that might plant a seed for them, right? It might send them the message that, hey, that's okay. And, you know, I think community stigma is a big thing that we see as a barrier, right, to talking about these things out loud. I know I've seen it in my own family, right? Well, what will this, what will the community think of this, right? Or I don't want this person to know what's going on because I don't want them to think negatively of our family, right? We hear those things all the time. And so if we can even start to take community approaches, right, thinking about some of our grassroots organizations, um, bringing our community together and 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 finding common space around mental health issues, I think that can also start to break down those barriers for our older generation. Oh, I'm just taking it all in because I think it was just like, <laughs> it's just like a slideshow, right, about all the people in our lives that we really love, but maybe at times are frustrated with or even really concerned about. And I think the fact that it's just so stigmatized and it is so interesting seeing how um how people compartmentalize things and how generations very much have i guess their own tone when it comes to certain issues um and especially like speaking about community like i i think at leap it's very much about you bringing your authentic self to wherever you're at um and we're big advocates of that but it's not always like a safe place to bring your most authentic self and that's where like the work comes in and I know like in the last couple of years alone like not only have we had like a health pandemic with the COVID-19 virus coupled with the fact that you know when it was first starting out it was very much linked to you know Chinese um, Americans and also like the country of China and then obviously nuance gets very lost when you're very much heated and scared Um, and then leading up to that you know like isolation. It's the perfect storm for so many mental health things. And then adding the, you know, anti-Asian attacks. It's a, I wouldn't say it's a blessing, but it's so interesting how when you finally get to go to therapy or seek help, which is a beautiful thing, it's always typically because of a very intense trauma that you can no longer hold yourself. So while I am, you know, in some sense relieved that 
millions more of our API community are seeking help. It's only because of this intense like economic anxiety, social and political unrest, social isolation, anti-Asian hate. Can you since you are like a clinical psychologist, Dr. Amin, I mean, Dr. Amin, how have you seen that in your life as well? Because not only are you dealing with folks who are making sense with this newfound trauma, you're also dealing with folks who, what you said, like were part of the VA and are now maybe, you know, wrestling with all these various intersectional traumas. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. I think we, we as a society try to hold it all together, right? And we try to keep moving forward in spite of what might be happening internally. And it's not until things are like busting at the seams, right? That we're like, okay, wait a second. I need, I need help. Right. Um, and, and I, I see this a lot, especially with trauma, right? Trauma is, is devastating to our minds, our bodies, our emotional systems. You know, it, it really sets us off into survival mode. And so we do our best to kind of hold it all together, you know, get through each day. But there comes a point, right, where we reach a fork in the road and we say, this is not working anymore, right? Like, I can't maintain this and this and this, all while trying to keep myself at a stable place. Um, and so that's often when I think people say, okay, maybe therapy is is something I can look to, right? Because all of these other things aren't working anymore. Um, and that's challenging. Um, and, and part of it too is being open to, to doing the work, right? Because the work is hard, um, you know, coming to terms with traumatic things we've gone through, coming face to face with that is a really scary place to be. Um, and it can often be um, frightening. It can be uh, emotionally overwhelming. It can feel undoable at times or impossible. And that makes trauma really hard to deal with. A lot of times what we try to do is avoid the trauma, right? If I just don't think about it, if I push it away, if I put it in, you know, in a nice little box and tie it up and put it on the shelf, I'll be fine. But trauma finds a way to come back, right? It finds a way to sort of be present and sort of in your face. And, and we all get to a point where we can no longer kind of do the back and forth, right? Keep putting it in the box and putting it on the shelf only for it to come back out again into the open. Um, and I think part of that is we then have to come to terms with, okay, I've got to do this, right? If I want to move forward, if I want to be unstuck, right? I've got to do this hard work. And that's really scary. And, and a lot of times what I end up doing with folks in my practice is just getting them comfortable, right? Before we actually dive into the trauma work, can we get you to a place where you're, you're comfortable, you're ready, you're prepared, to do the hard stuff, right? To face the hard things and to feel the hard emotion. Right. No, that's beautiful. You sound like a great therapist. <laughs> um, 
Oh, I love that. No, I I think you speak a lot of truth. And I am so curious, just like maybe if we can, if you can share your professional, you know, opinion on what you've been seeing, like specifically with COVID-19 and, you know, the rise of anti-Asian hate. Again, it's like the perfect storm for immense trauma and immense need to tackle that trauma. Have Has there been any specific, um, I guess, mental health disparities that you've seen within the API community directly related to COVID-19 and these anti-Asian attacks? Yeah, you know, I think what, what I'm seeing, right, is the intersection of our community being quiet, right, and silent and um, not talking about these things, colliding with this is so overwhelming, we can't not talk about it. It's affecting so many of us, right? So I was reading through the recent um, statistics that Stop AAPI Hate put out, and they they um, put something out that said one in five AAPIs have experienced a hate incident in the past year. And they had a a wonderful graphic that basically said that that was equivalent to 5 million people. And that really took me by surprise. Not surprised because I know it's been happening. I think what I was surprised about was just how, how much that extended, right? One in five AAPIs, 5 million people. I think they said that that was equivalent to like, 99% of California's AAPI population. So it was like, wow, almost every AAPI person in California having experienced a hate incident, right? And that's Mm -hmm. huge. And I think what that's doing is it's, it's putting us in a space where we no longer can be silent, right? We have to rise up and we have to advocate and we have to be vocal about what's happening. And when we do that, we start to normalize and validate the experiences that people in our community are having, right? Experience with a hate incident, right? That's a trauma that has a lasting effect, right? Again, physically, emotionally, and cognitively. And, you know, the impact of feeling afraid to leave your home, right? No longer feeling safe. That can be devastating. And it can have lasting impact on the way we then move forward in the world, right? How we how we live life. And it also, I think, you know, I don't want to forget too that in addition to the hate that we've seen with this current pandemic, we also are still struggling with um, the anti-Muslim rhetoric, right? That's impacted so many of our, our, our Asian American population as well. And that's been ongoing since 9-11, right? I think I was um, listening to the news yesterday and there was a a clip that I came across um, from Congresswoman Omar from Minnesota. She played a clip of a death threat that she received, right? Um, Based on her identity as a Muslim woman. And, you know, we've seen so many of our South Asian brothers and sisters experience that day in and day out since 9-11, right? So it's like this long history of anti-Asian discrimination that we no longer can be 
quiet about. We can't be nice about it anymore, right? We can't be passive about it and just keep it within our own networks. We have to be loud and vocal about it. And we have to start addressing it in ways, like I said before, that starts to validate what we're going through, right? Because that's what's really going to open the door for, for those of us who experience these types of incidents to reach out, to talk about it, um, to help ourselves. And um, it's also those things that are going to connect us to and build solidarity with our other communities of color, right? Um, and if we don't have that solidarity with these communities, right, both within and without, outside of ourselves, then we're, we're losing sight of dismantling the systems that are perpetuating these, these situations. And, and you're going to have an opportunity to do that in your new leadership role, right? To, to be that voice, um, to speak out for those in our communities that can't speak out or are not able to, and then to build those bridges across communities of color. Can you share a little bit about um, what, you're, what you're looking forward to in your new leadership role? And then, you know, what does leadership mean to you? And how, how are you going to use this new vehicle to kind of uplift others and, you know, and, and I don't know, encourage and develop additional change makers like yourself. Well, I, you know, I'm really excited about this role. I, I should say I'm excited and terrified all at the same time. Um, you know, <laughs> what I'm looking forward to is uh, continuing the social justice movement that some of our members have started up in response to things that have happened just in the last several years. And I'm looking forward to giving voice to the marginalized communities within our larger community as well. Uh, so part of our presidential initiatives, myself and my um, VP, Christine Katipon, is to, to give voice to those who haven't been heard. So in our small um, AAPA community, right, I want to make sure that our international folk are um, having a space where they can talk about what it's like for them to be international, right? <clears throat> Working in the States, but but tied to to another another space, another country. The challenges that come with, with being um, in the States, right? And, and work and, and whatnot. I want to give voice to um, our brown Asians, right? Who often are sort of um, left on the periphery and um, to our Pacific Islander populations. Um, you know, where we often, you know, they're often overlooked, right? Our indigenous populations are often overlooked in research, um, in clinical care, right? In the interventions that we develop. And so giving voice to those within our community. And like you said, building solidarity with our other ethnic psychological associations. It's, it's high time that we solidify these relationships and really start to come together. And, and I've been lucky to have a string of presidents and um, committee members who have already started building those relationships. And so I'm excited to be able to step in and continue that and start to move it forward. I think one of the cool things is, you know, we're reaching our, our 50 year anniversary next year, which is very exciting. And I'm, I'm, I'm really pumped to sort of 
move AAPA into a modern framework, right? Thinking about the ways in which our world is changing with technology, the ways we connect with people, um, even just in the last two years, right? Seeing the whole mental health field have to um, shift and move into working with, with clients in a telespace, right? Um, in a virtual arena. And uh, I want to make sure that we're keeping up with those things, right? We're staying current. We're, we're, we're staying relevant, not just to those of us who are in mental health, but to the entire API community, right? Because we're all impacted by mental health. Um, and in terms of leadership, right? Again, for me, leadership is tied into community. I think those things for me are, are inextricable. And that really stems from this value of altruism that was instilled in me from my parents and my grandparents, right? It's the, it's the thing that has sort of kept me going and it's a thing that gives me meaning in my life, right? And so I want to make sure that what I'm doing is is very much tied into, into my communities. And leadership, I don't think, is a solo operation. For me, it's a team, it's a team-based situation. And so I, I want to think too about uh, that mentorship model that was given to me that that has gotten me to where I am that has helped me to achieve the things that I've achieved in my short career. And so wanting to be mentors for others, pulling them up, right? Encouraging other people as I've been encouraged um, and passing it forward, right? That's been a really big thing for me and has been really impactful. When someone does something for me and I say, well, what can I do to repay you? And they say, pass it forward. That I think is like so powerful, right? Um, and if we can kind of keep passing things forward, then we end up kind of continuously moving things in a way um, where we it doesn't have to stop, right? It continues to kind of connect people um, in the long term. Something like that. Yeah. It's really interesting, Dr. I mean, because like when you talk, I feel like it's going on for a while in a good way. Because I'm like, wow, look at this arc narrative. But then I look at the clock. I'm like, oh, she's only talked for like two minutes. <laughs> um, so I'm really curious because I think my mental health journey for me personally, I had a very hard time coming home. I was so excited to come home to Orange County after I left college. But I think... For me, college was this very like saturated in color experience, you know, like being young, being like having fun, freedom. I didn't have time to necessarily think of my mental health per se because I was so busy. Um, and then when I came home, everything just slowed down because now I'm integrating into like full-time work. Um, just the culture is very different. Everything is much more spaced out and isolating. And I think when I stretched myself in that way, I realized the holes in my mental health. And like any millennial, I went to the internet and I really had no idea how to find a therapist because at school, it's like, oh, you have this specific center, but it's like an underlining knowledge that the mental health services within our universities and unfortunately in our everyday healthcare systems are incredibly inundated and the folks who are trying to help you are also burnt out themselves. So at times it's just, you know, like a, a vicious cycle. So I literally just had to Google Asian female therapist 
Blue Shield Insurance, Orange County, and just, you know, hoped for the best. And I think I am lucky to, you know, speak a majority language. So it that's half the battle. So for folks like we were sharing in the beginning, who not only have such a fear of being seen as weak or undignified if they seek health, now they are faced with one, like insurance therapy without insurance is incredibly expensive. It's like almost offensively so how expensive it is. And then if you are insured, then you run the risk of, you know, having a provider outside your network or, you know, potentially that person is just so booked with their own clients that they don't have an opening for you. And then it becomes this cycle of like, oh, it's so I need help to even get help. So I might not even, like you said, we might not just deal with our traumas because now it's getting even more difficult. So I would just love, you know, in your personal and professional opinion, like how do folks seek help in this broken system when there is so much lack of access? It's really hard. And I know I sound like a broken record when I say that, but I wish our field was better. Um, in terms of giving folks like better access, right? Because you're right, when we come up on barriers, it it's adding to, you know, refraining from a thing we already don't want to be doing in the first place. Um, and 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 I'll put it out there. I personally have had trouble finding my own therapist and and it's hard, you know. Um, going through a list of people, you know, that your insurance gives you, right? Just navigating the insurance website is challenging. And I know I've definitely like, okay, I've got 30 minutes. Let me see if I can and can open up the internet and look at the network and see. And then it, it's, it's not a fun process, right? So it's some, it's like a chore and it, it's hard to do it. Um, and you're right. For those of us, who don't have insurance, right? That becomes even harder. Where do you even go? Where do you look? Because a private pay therapist is going to be a lot of money. Um, you know, this is a this I think is a systemic issue that we need to fix. Um, it's an issue that our field of psychology needs to deal with. Um, bringing in and recruiting uh, therapists of color, therapists who speak diverse languages, um, therapists from different backgrounds, um, in order to meet the need and to meet meet the population that's out there. Um, it's tough. I mean, I I I do think that in the last year, two years, we've seen a lot more um, in terms of directories of BIPOC providers coming out. Um, so if you just Google BIPOC therapists, you'll start to see kind of different um, different media outlets sort of compiling these lists because I think we're starting to realize, or at least the media is starting to, to attend to that, you know, whether it's a fad for them or not, we'll see how long it lasts. But in this moment, they're starting to put those things together. So we're starting to see directories being put together, which is great. Um, as much as I, I like, 
as much as I resist like going through the insurance portal and whatnot, if you can stick with it and just work through it, you will find someone. Um, I often hear people say like, you know, I, I've called seven people and they've all said, no, they're all full. And, and that's really hard. Um, so insurance is one way it's challenging. I wish we were better at it, but it's, it's an option, right? So just, just reminding yourself, this is one option that I have. Um, and then even just thinking about what resources are out there in my community. And sometimes just doing a quick search on Google of like mental health, community resources can sort of open up your eyes and sort of think about, get you thinking about what might be, you know, in certain neighborhoods or in certain communities or, or what what's being offered at that level. Um, but again, it's, it's something we need to do better at. It's a system we need to fix and we really need to fix it quickly. Um, it's becoming harder and harder. And, and I'm seeing this a lot um, all over healthcare, right? Finding someone um, who has an appointment that's that's soon, right? Not in one to two months. And so I think at some point we're going to have to come face to face with this um, nationally, right? We're going to have to fix this in a lot of different ways. Um, I might also encourage folks to think about, um, you know, there's traditional therapy and then there's other strategies and things that we can also think about, right? So groups, community groups can be really helpful. Um, if there's a group therapy option, sometimes people shy away from groups because they don't want to talk about what's going on with them in front of other people. But a group can actually be a really powerful place to be. Sometimes even just hearing someone else say something or describe something that you connect with, right, makes you feel less alone and less isolated. And sometimes we really pick up a lot of great strategies from the people around us. So thinking about, okay, what at a community level might connect me with other people, right? So so thinking about groups. Um, there's a lot of, I, I caution people too, to just be mindful of, you know, all the self-help tools that are out there. Um, if something doesn't feel right or sit right with you, um, try and find a provider to talk through that with, right? There's a lot of people out there, a lot of social media um, sources on mental health. And, and, and while I think that that's great and we're drawing attention to that, I don't want people to get caught up in something that ends up being unhelpful to them in the long term. So I, I always suggest to people, you know, even if it's just your primary care doctor, you know, run something by them if, if you're questioning it, right? And and those those folks can also maybe connect you with other people who could be helpful. Um, part of what I, I try to do in my work, especially at the VA, is, is empower people to be advocates for themselves, right? Um, so if I can help you figure out a way to communicate with this provider or that provider in a way that that helps you have a better experience with the healthcare system, that's really my goal, right? That's what I want to work on. And so I think we need providers to sort of be in that role and be in that space, right? Kind of helping everyone, um, you know, that they're interacting with navigate this or learn the system, right? Because if I know what I'm dealing with, if I know what I'm facing, then I can plan for it, right? Whether versus if it's an ambiguous thing and I'm not sure what it what it is or what it looks like, I might feel more frustrated as I'm stumbling my way through it. Um, 
but yeah, I wish, I wish I had a better answer, but I don't. And I wish I had a magic wand that I could just wave and, you know, everything would be fixed. Um, you know, one thing that we're trying to do is just build a provider directory ourselves for, um, uh, AAPA. And, and we're hoping that that opens up the door as well to folks who are looking for API identified therapists and is another way of kind of, um, helping in terms of finding someone um, that's reliable, that that's, that's, you know, skilled and has training in the areas that you need. So, so circling back to um, when you shared about the impact that Dr. White had on you and being part of the freedom train, can you share with us, um, you know, something personal about a leap of faith that you've taken um, in your life that led you to where you are today to be the, the leader that you're going to be for, for so many of us in our communities? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I would say my leap of faith um, was choosing to run for, for president of AAPA. Um, and it's a recent thing that happened right in the last year, but it really required me to step outside of my comfort zone. And I had to really kind of, it was the first time I think in a long time where I had to put faith in myself and my abilities and step into something that I knew others would be watching. And it wasn't something that I had really given a lot of thought to until I had another colleague approach me and say, you should do this. And, you know, it required me to trust this other person and their, you know, their evaluation of me, right. And their support of me and not allow my brain to pick it apart. Right. I had to accept their encouragement without qualifying it. And that was really terrifying for me. Um, the other part of it too, was I never saw myself in that space. I never saw myself as a leader of an entire organization, right? Because I've always been a quiet kind of passive person. Um, and I had to really come face to face with this idea that leadership doesn't fall into a certain method or modality, right? Quiet people can be leaders too. Um, and leadership can be diverse. And so, I am solely running on faith in myself as I as I put myself out there to run for this position and accept the position and, and, and go with it. And so I would say that that has been my leap of faith, right? And I think it's it's a reflection of my growth in myself, right? The work that I've had to do on me. Um, it's a reflection of the mentorship that I've received. And it's, it's, a, it's, it really is, um, like I said, probably the one thing that I've had to do, you know, in a very long time where, where faith is really the foundation, right? Believing in myself and believing in, in, in my abilities and my potential.